This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode comes with a content warning. If you are sensitive to topics such as domestic violence, please be aware that we will be taking a deep dive into the subject. And if you're not sure if you're ready to hear this story, I would at least invite you to listen to my chat with the author, which we're beginning this episode with, a brief snippet of that. And then we will return to it at the end of the episode after our second commercial break. We touch on re-experiencing trauma through writing, how to set up boundaries for ourselves, and how to approach a situation where you might suspect someone is a victim of abuse. And as I said, we'll begin with a brief snippet of an interview with the author, and then we'll go right into their story. This week, we are welcoming Miriam Gerba onto the show. Miriam Gerba is a queer spoken word artist, visual artist, and writer living and teaching in Long Beach, California. Gerba's debut novel, Dahlia Season, won the Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction from Publishing Triangle and was a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award. Her true crime memoir, Mean, was a New York Times editor's choice, while Oprah Magazine ranked Mean as one of the best LGBTQ books of all time. Publishers Weekly describes Gerba as having a voice like no other. Miriam will be reading her story, Writing Ourselves Into Bed, originally published on tasteforrude.com. She will be accompanied by an original story-bound remix featuring Zola Jesus. I'm Miriam Gerba, and this is Storybound. I'll be reading a personal essay titled, Writing Ourselves Into Bed. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Pod Agglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. I sat down with Miriam Gerba and we had a conversation, which you are about to hear a brief snippet of. And then after our first commercial break, you'll hear her read her story writing ourselves into bed. All right, here we go. Miriam, I appreciate you sitting down with me today. Your episode affected me in multiple ways, in ways that I've experienced trauma firsthand and also secondhand through friends and family. And it wasn't just the story itself that affected me. When you were in the studio, uh, before we hit record, you gave us a heads up that you might have some difficulty reading the story, which you did beautifully. And I'm curious, 
The way you write about your experiences is harrowing to read. So how do you prepare yourself to write it? And do you place boundaries for yourself as far as when you deliberately choose to remember it and examine it? Maybe if you could expound a little bit on that for us. That is an excellent question, or those are that's an excellent set of questions. The reason that I appreciate that question is because I've encountered during interviews the following question. Isn't writing about abuse cathartic? And while writing has cathartic elements, there's nothing innately cathartic about it. And when a person creates art that is rooted in a history of trauma, that person does have to revisit those moments and that person is required to remember them, reimagine them, and in many senses, reconstruct them. And I think that it is that reconstruction that can be incredibly difficult. And uh, that reconstruction can not only awaken the prior wound, but can bring a new injury. Because of that, and because of my experience writing about trauma, I make it a point of attempting to actively dispel the myth of writing as an easy form of catharsis. I don't think that art is always cathartic. And I do think that it's important for a writer who wants to set down that road of writing about histories of uh, either collective or individual trauma to understand that it is important to be boundaried about that writing and the writer understand that they're going to revisit a wound, that they might experience new wounds as a result of what they're choosing to do. There is a way to structure the experience so that that person, the writer, can prioritize their mental health as they go through that experience. So you had asked, um, what boundaries do I create for myself if I'm going to sit down and I'm going to recount or chronicle? What I tend to do is block off a specific number of days. So I'll tell myself, for these two weeks, I'm going to be working on this project that's going to require research and what I would refer to as like a revisitation, right? Where I travel back into the past. And I understand that that's going to be very difficult for me and that I'm going to need emotional support and social support. And so I will tell the people who are closest to me, who I know are capable of providing that, that that's going to be happening. My romantic partner will know, my immediate family will know, my closest friends will know. I will also tell my, my therapist so that I can have a community of people who accompanies me through that process. Otherwise, I'm plunged back into isolation. And when one is being abused, often one is experiencing not just intense isolation, but the most isolation one will ever experience in their life. That's the point of, of abuse, in particular domestic abuse. Um, and that's something that's widely misunderstood about domestic abuse. The point of it is to cut you off from social systems and to effectively socially kill you. 
And so you are returning to that point in your life and, and you need to be sustained. So I do construct very deliberate boundaries around that experience, around the artistic experience of trying to represent that. This was a brief snippet of a larger conversation, which we will return to at the end of this episode. But for now, a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a story read by Miriam Gerba with an original Storybound remix featuring Zola Jesus. of my writing, this essay included, at a kitchen table I've had for about 20 years. Pockmarks and scratches are etched into its white surface. Chrome legs hold it up. Though it wobbles and squeaks, sentimental attachment makes my table hard to get rid of. It was one of the first biggish household items I bought after moving out of my parents' house, and I've eaten countless meals at it. I've laughed, cried, and argued with friends and family gathered here. I've iced gingerbread cookies on it, and I've climbed this table and balanced on it to change light bulbs. Several years ago, this guy that I dated, broke up with, and then reunited with, used my table to fuck my face up. We were having a conversation and something pissed him off. After stomping over to me, he grabbed my hair and slammed my head against my table. He pressed my face against it using all of his weight. 
The things this man did to my head terrified me because people in my family have died from violence done to their heads. After someone slammed my cousin's head into a sidewalk, his brain quit working. He was 15 and his was the first funeral I ever attended. I was 13. I remember approaching his coffin to say goodbye and I remember thinking that he looked very handsome. I noticed fluid leaking from his ears. I wasn't sure what to say, so I said nothing. Those of us who've endured domestic violence, and I mark the term to indicate my distaste for it, it fails to capture the full scope of harm which battered women are subjected to. Understand that in a misogynist's hands, everyday objects become sublethal weapons. They also become instruments of torture. The guy who bashed my head against my table also suffocated me with pillows and pillowcases. He beat me with kitchen tools. He strangled me with one of his belts and attempted to lift me into the air with it. In imitation of a baseball player, he hurled books and shoes at my face, head, neck, and breasts. During these pitching exercises, he'd order, if you move, I'll have to do it again. As a consequence of his calculated brutality, a freeze response replaced my fight-or-flight instinct. One evening, I heard him call my name. I went to the bedroom to see what he wanted. When I opened the bedroom door, the room looked empty. I took several steps and felt something knock me in the back of the head. I don't know the reason for this attack. He had a lot of rules and I couldn't keep them all straight. Maybe I made the bed wrong. Maybe I smiled at him the wrong way. One of his rules was no fake smiles. Maybe I wore deodorant that offended him. He hated that I wore Old Spice. He dragged me to a large plastic trash bag he'd arranged in the corner. That's what you call premeditation. He was an eco-conscious misogynist. He avoided plastic bags. In the kitchen, he meticulously sorted the trash, making sure to separate recyclables, placing them in repurposed paper bags from Trader Joe's. He brought out a plastic bag for my flesh and blood. After yanking me out from it, he further assaulted me. When he was done, he ordered me to bathe myself. After showering, I saw myself in the bathroom mirror. Evidence of his violence was already spreading across my face. I hated the marks and covered them in makeup. From that evening forward, I wore makeup 24-7, even to sleep. I couldn't stand to see the damage he did to me. So much of his violence was directed at my face. It's difficult to move on after being put in a trash bag by someone who also professes to love you. In fact, it's so horrifying that you ask yourself, did this motherfucker really put me in a trash bag? Yep. In the year after that incident, the sight of trash bags scared the shit out of me. 
I knew what it was like to fear for my life inside of one. I knew the sound my breath made as plastic crinkled toward my nose and then away from it. I don't know how long I was in that bag and crawling my way free was not an option. After he'd beaten me to the ground, metal had encircled my wrists. Handcuffs. Time proverbially stopped as I inhaled and exhaled. With hands locked behind my back, I curled into a fetal position and waited. Camus was a problematic motherfucker. I do, however, appreciate that he wrote, quote, the absurd is lucid reasoning noting its limits, end quote. That is some wisdom. Being forced to occupy a trash bag remains, hands down, one of the shittiest moments of my life. I'm glad I survived, but I must admit that a part of me remains in that trash bag. I'm working on retrieving it. The same fucker who put me in that trash bag also assembled my bed. Things that I wish had not happened, happened in that bed. When battered women move on, sometimes we start over in a new home that's, in many ways, a reconstitution of our old home. We might not be sharing walls or a roof with the piece of shit who fucked us up, but the weapons he used remain. They don't look like weapons. They look like ordinary things. That's what's so frightening about them. Physical escape isn't the same as psychic freedom. Like a ghost or a bedbug, memories of him will follow you. Memories of what he did will continue to make the hair on the back of your neck rise. Eventually the memories will dissipate, but it takes a while. For most of my life, I've had trouble sleeping. Nightmares bother me. Restlessness does too. I envy people who fall asleep with ease. I wish I could do that and people who sleep in public inspire my awe. I can hardly sleep in private and I'll never trust the general public with my unconsciousness. I know how certain men behave around sleeping women. The bed that that asshole assembled was one of the items that came with me to the place where I started over. I've tried my best to sleep in it, but I often wake up just after midnight engulfed by fear. I look over my shoulder to make sure no one's there. I tell myself that any spooky shapes in the room are just spooky shapes. That's my robe hanging from a hook. That's the chair my grandmother Esperanza reupholstered. That's a shadow being cast by blinds. He's not here. It's impossible, however, to successfully self-soothe in a bed built by someone who put you in a trash bag. No amount of hot cocoa or chamomile tea can undo that association. Lavender oil can't fix it. I've been wanting a new bed for a while, but beds cost money and money is something I worry about a lot. Beds add up. There's the frame, 
the mattress, the delivery, and the assembly. I trust myself to assemble some furniture, but not a bed. Some nights I escape my bed by sleeping on the floor. The floor feels safe, much safer than the bed. I loved sleeping on the floor during childhood slumber parties. I went to teenage slumber parties too, and there was this girl at one slumber party who got popular by teaching everyone to queef. The vacant noises she could make with her pussy inspired everyone to go home and practice. Do big purchases make you anxious? They make me anxious, and I think that's fairly standard. Buying a house is stressful. Buying a car is stressful. Buying furniture can be stressful. Buying a bed can be really stressful. Okay, so super recently, I acknowledged to myself that my personal finances are such that buying a new bed is now doable. Still, my determination to get one stays tempered by emotional hurdles. Because the last person I went bed shopping with put me in a trash bag, repeating this activity is going to trigger memories of him. Another thing that makes me apprehensive is the notion of negotiating a salesperson's questions. I really don't want to be asked, and what qualities are you looking for in a bed? I imagine myself answering, I'm in the market for a bed that you can guarantee I will never be raped in. Do you have any in stock? Have you ever been labeled difficult for being honest? I have. I bring someone I love with me for moral support and we go to check out a bed frame and mattress I found online. I want to experience my new bed and mattress in person before I hand over money for them. I don't want to buy something so important sight unseen. I want to see what I'm getting myself into. I want to touch what I'm getting myself into. Buying the bed is easy. The salesman doesn't give me any weird, gendered shit. But since the furniture store is out of the mattress I want, we go to a nearby mattress store where we confuse a salesman. Instead of directing his questions at me, the bitch with the purpose and the money, the salesman repeatedly addresses the shy man I've invited to stand at my side. He's there so that I'll have somebody to cry to in the parking lot once we're done. He's not there to speak on my behalf. I can do that myself. I don't need an ambassador. the parking lot, it rains. I appreciate the symmetry. The old bed is gone and a new one occupies its place. I won't describe it. You don't need to visualize it to get how much having it matters to me, how important it is that this new piece of furniture now holds me. 
I paid for it with money that I earned writing. <laughs> I wrote my way into a new bed. I love its smell. It smells of not him, and that happens to be the best smell in the world. Beds are important. We spend roughly 33 years sleeping, 33 years in bed. When I turned 33, a poet I loved very much told me, happy birthday, you're the same age as Jesus when he got crucified. The poet and I laughed and laughed. She's dead now. I wasn't there when she died, but I think she died in bed. I couldn't attend her death because I was in Mexico, where my grandmother Arcelia died in her bed one day later. A lot of us are born in beds. Once, when I was hanging out in Yorba Linda, I got bored, and so I went to see the birthplace of Richard Nixon. A docent took us to the very bed the dead president was born in. There's nothing special about it. The bed doesn't look evil, which, of course, makes it creepier. When my grandmother Arcelia died, I was eating a tamal for breakfast. My uncle entered the dining room and announced, I no longer have a mother. I'm an orphan. Everyone followed him away from the kitchen table, down the hallway, to the bedroom. We assembled around my grandmother's bed. Her mouth hung open. Her eyes were closed. She was still the way only dead people are. She looked beautiful. Pain no longer contorted her expression. Seriously, it looked as if she'd had Botox. She was 90, wrinkle-free, and free. Three generations stared and cried. My uncle grabbed his camera and began snapping photographs. In my family, deathbed and sickbed portraiture is common. My aunt, who was also my godmother, began to pray. She spoke to God, telling them that it was time to receive my grandmother's spirit. She explained to God what her mother had suffered on earth. As my godmother addressed God, she wailed. Spirit inhabited her wailing and ours. The spirit was tangible. An icon of La Virgen de Guadalupe, which hung from a nail a few feet above my grandmother's bed, shyly looked away from us. Two men dressed in black arrived. They wheeled a gurney into the hall, and I watched them place a bag containing my grandmother on it. They loaded her into a van and drove her to a funeral home. We buried my grandmother, and afterward, I got sick. I felt like I was going to vomit. I stayed home while my family attended a mass. Its purpose was to pray for my grandmother's spirit, that she might experience peace during her first night in a tomb with my grandfather. 
During sunset, I felt my grandmother's presence in the house. I felt it in the amber light. My grandmother helped to raise me. She enjoyed drawing and painting, and she's the reason I take art so seriously. She's the reason I was able to write my way into a new bed. Writing is an art form. I didn't want to let go of my grandmother. I wanted her to hold me, and so I walked to her bedroom. Her bed hadn't been changed since she died in it. She spent the last years of her life living in the bed where she took her last breath. I stood at her bedside contemplating life in a bed. Wanting to see what my grandmother had seen the last years of her life, I climbed into it. Her smell engulfed me. I pressed my face into her pillow and inhaled. I looked up at the ceiling, the ceiling she stared at for years. She was with me in that moment and she's with me now. She's the reason I'm able to write here at this table. We used to sit together and make art at tables in the United States and in Mexico. I think it's likely that I will always make art at tables. I continue to make art for her. The music in this episode was sampled from the song Exhumed by Zola Jesus. And now for our final break. You are listening to Storybound with Miriam Gerba and Zola Jesus. And now we will switch back to the rest of our discussion. Miriam, for a moment, I just want to take a moment to sort of address our listeners because you you unpacked a lot of good information uh, when describing the act of writing. In fact, the key word you mentioned was isolation. You know, and this is writing a short story or a novel, which is not inherently a collaborative process. The very act of sitting and writing alone, it's an isolating experience. So it makes sense how you could emotionally regress by traveling back to a traumatic period of your life, not unlike therapy, which in that instance, you're not doing alone. And it's very wise of you to let your significant other and your closest friends know that you are going through this solo journey so that you're not re-traumatizing yourself. As a person diagnosed with complex PTSD, I'm a major proponent of psychotherapy and crisis lines, more experimental practices in regards to processing and healing. And thanks to the 14 years of therapy I've put myself through, I understand now how to declare my boundaries, which you did. 
just before we begin recording, you reading your story, you told me beforehand that you might break down, that simply reading the story could have an effect on you. And while you didn't have that reaction while reading it, I believe that's only because you stated your boundaries beforehand, which in effect created a safe space for your feelings. Absolutely, yeah. So was writing something you always did? How did you discover writing? So I don't know that discovery is the right word for describing my attraction to writing and my my writing practice. I have always been drawn to art. I had Mexican grandparents who were involved in the arts. My grandfather was a writer and he was a poet among other things. And then my grandmother painted. And so I spent a lot of time with my grandmother in both the United States and in Mexico. And a lot of our time spent together was art making time. So she would make art using me as a subject because she was a portrait painter. I would be the subject of portraits. And so I understood as a child that through that process that I was a potential subject. I was required to be my grandmother's subject, but there was also affection in being a subject and socialization involved in being a subject and information sharing that happened between artist and subject because I was a child during those art making experiences and I didn't want to sit still. I'm a really like um, energetic sort of fidgety person. (laughs) Yeah, that was me as a kid too. Very, very fidgety. (laughs) So, (laughs) So to keep me in my seat and to be able to observe me in order to sketch me and make portraits of me, my grandmother had to, I don't want to say hypnotize me, but she had to soothe me enough that I would be captivated and still and she did that by talking and by storytelling and so to me visual art making intersected with storytelling it intersected with oral traditions and in a, in some senses even with myth making because often my grandmother would tell me these like sort of fantastical stories that would have me completely still and and waiting for the next sentence so that she could paint me you know and so those early experiences of art making inspired me to want to become a visual artist like my grandmother initially and i didn't pedestal my grandfather the way that i put my grandmother on a pedestal to me she was like this superior being and he was this inferior being. So I figured, well, if he can do it, you know, this old man shuffling around in Huaraches, I can do it. <laughs> it, it totally. And that's great because your grandfather and your grandmother both gave you these gifts unintentionally. And you were resourceful enough at a young age to adopt those. Oh, totally. And my grandfather was like, my grandfather is an incredibly problematic person and problematic figure in our family. But I do appreciate that that gift came to me through that heritage. Right. And I would define my own father as a problematic figure as well. 
And so a lot of my life and writing it has meant untangling the problematic parts with the gifts that were given and then associating the correct parts with my own identity and not all of them. I feel a connection there with how you were unintentionally given these tools and you picked them up because you were obviously inclined to do so. But not everyone is given that opportunity and not everyone is innately inclined to pick up those tools such as visual arts or writing. Much in the same way that not everyone feels that they have a support group if they are living in an abusive environment, And as much as they might want to ask for help or leave that environment, there are obstacles that people living on the outside of that environment do not see. So for the people who don't understand the complicated dynamics of an abusive environment, how do they respond to your story when they hear it? So frequently, when I have told my story to people, I have been asked, why did you not do X, Y, or Z? And my answer often is because I didn't want to die. I hope what many people can come to eventually understand is that when people are lured into relationships that involve domestic violence, what often hangs above the scenario is a death threat. That's why we don't leave. We don't want to die. And so leaving is a very fraught prospect. And it's one that is made much easier with assistance. Over half of the unhoused population is women who have fled domestic violence. We shouldn't have to leave. We should be able to stay home. And the person who is harming us should be the entity who has to leave. They should be the ones expelled from the scenario. So what I want to advise people of is this. If you suspect that somebody you care about is trapped in a situation of domestic violence, understand that that person is trapped. Understand that that person is living in a cage and you can't necessarily see what that cage is made of, but it's made of very strong materials. And if that person is going to exit that cage, it's going to be a lot easier for them to do it with some measure of assistance. And while that person is trapped in that cage, a sort of life-sustaining gift that you can offer them is compassion, understanding, and connectedness, continued connectedness. Because with that continued connectedness, that person who is trapped will maintain the hope that they can use that connectedness as a bridge to exit that cage. That they'll be able to shimmy through some crack that they find in that cage and out, and there'll be somebody waiting for them on the other side. So I advise people remain connected to that person who is trapped because those connections are what's going to foster hope and enable that person to leave. And those connections can be as basic as texting that person on a daily basis that you're just thinking about them and that you love them. And you don't even necessarily need to bring up that you know that they're being abused and absolutely do not push that person to leave because that person will leave when they know that they can do so safely. Because leaving at the wrong moment imperils a person's life and and safety. The maintenance 
of of community for that person in any way that community can be made and delivered to that person who is trapped is of utmost importance. You can learn more about resources on domestic violence support at thehotline.org. They're a great resource for identifying abuse and how to provide support for others. If you believe you know someone who is experiencing domestic violence, please call 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, that's 1-800-799-SAFE. Thank you to Miriam Gerba for reading and taking the time to chat. You can buy yourself a copy of her book, Mean, at your favorite local bookseller. Also, thank you to Zola Jesus for their song, Exhumed. Just like all the music you hear on this show, what you heard was not the original. So please go check them out on Spotify. That's Zola Jesus. You can listen to their album, Akovi. It's gorgeous. Please give it a listen. Also, thank you to Third Wheel Podcast Studio for recording Miriam, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Storybound is scored, arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can find us on Twitter or on Instagram at StoryboundPod. You can also tweet at me directly on Twitter at Jude Brewery. We have new episodes coming out every Tuesday. We'll see you then. Universe.